0: Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of realeverything.com. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out.
1: And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantine of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health.
0: Hey listeners, welcome back to The Whole View, episode 407. I know that it might seem a little unusual But this is one of the reasons that Sarah and I do weekly recordings, so that we can address things that are happening in the real world. And with everything that's going on right now, it just didn't seem right to do our planned podcast. So instead, we want to open up a conversation with you. We've been having conversation amongst ourselves and feel really passionately that it's important that we talk about both the racial disparities that cause things that we talk about on this podcast all the time. Um, to dive into that a little bit deeper, and to help all of us understand what we can do to support the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, If you're listening to this podcast later, it is um, the first week of June, and it is a week where we as a nation are really examining um, how we treat the Black community. So, hi, Sarah, (laughs) Little, (laughs) little nervous laughter there. I'm just going to get that out of the way. Like we're not going to be perfect in this show, but we're going to give it our darndest.
1: Yeah. And I think it's it's really important to, to preface the show. You know, we're going to do what we always do on this podcast. We're going to talk about health and wellness and safety. Um, you know, we talk about non-toxic living. We always talk about that driven by science and data and then intersecting that with the real life emotional and physical experience. And that is what we're going to do uh, in this week's episode and dive into how all of those things are disproportionately affecting the Black community and how that was Um, has been like a major contributor to this moment in history. And I think it's also really important to preface this entire conversation by expressing our solidarity with the Black community against racism, against injustice, and against senseless violence.
0: Absolutely. I also want to acknowledge that Sarah and I are both two college-educated white women That live in the suburbs. We cannot possibly understand the black experience. Um, We can't understand, but we stand with the ideals of um, equality, safety, wellness for all, um, as we talk about on the show all the time. And we realized, well, I realized that we haven't been doing a good job of that. I you know, personally felt like I had beliefs that aligned with that, but I had this moment of realization earlier this week when a reader called me out and held me accountable. And I'm so grateful for it. At first I was defensive and (laughs) I think a lot of us feel that way. Um, a lot of the time it's just my personality nature, but the more that I thought about it, the more I realized. how it was important for me to not just be um, not personally a racist, but to be anti-racist. And the thing that really, like, clicked for me was when this reader said, but being gluten-free and using non-toxic skincare won't matter if I'm dead in the street. And I was like, whoa. Wow. Like, that really brought it home for me how... Yeah important. This is that like, you know, I was also reading, as many of you know, we've gone through foster training. And I was also reading this other thing about, you know, the um, principles of hierarchy of your um, psychological state of well being. And at the very core, the very, the very lowest rung is safety. And if you don't, if you don't feel safe, you can't get to anything else there is no like um ability in your uh cognitive thought process to process more complicated matters because the the safety is what drives not just your emotional well-being but like your your psyche um and putting those things together and realizing how it really gluten-free doesn't matter if you're worrying about your safety when you go out, um, having done nothing wrong. And so, you know, I didn't, I didn't speak on this because I didn't feel like I had the right words or I didn't know where to start or, you know, I didn't feel right or whatever. And I, I feel like I want to put it out there that as all of us start to have these conversations, it's going to be hard. It's going to be uncomfortable. It's going to be awkward. Um, but doing that hard work, Including putting ourselves out there right right now on this podcast, um, it it creates a sense of uh, fear from backlash, right? But I want yeah. I want to say that choosing to not speak is is part of that privilege that most of us, um, knowing who most of you are from what iTunes tells us, um, are come from a a place of that privilege of not being able to speak and um, when I imagine that fear that we feel, Sarah, this uncomfortableness and fear that we have right now, um, as being something you have your whole life with no choice because of the color of your skin, um, from the age of three, five, eight, whenever you realize it, um, that's the black experience all the time. And I just, uh, (laughs) you know, it was like, this is not okay. And we, we, we can do something, we can help people try to understand. So that's, that's our goal today. Um, and I appreciate your patience with us as we tackle something that is new, but very important.
1: Yeah, I think, um, for me, my, my experience has been similar in the sense of, you know, starting with, um, starting with a sense of discomfort around finding the right words to express myself, um, trying to find the right way to express solidarity with the Black community. Um, And for me, I think that that feeling of nervousness and awkwardness has been compounded by being an immigrant. Um, And there's this... um, this part of the immigration experience where um, where it's i I feel like I'm not supposed to criticize my adopted home, right? I'm supposed to love everything um about America. and I think that I've come around to really viewing the data that we're going to be sharing on this episode um, as something more important, right It's about Building awareness of a systemic problem that needs to be fixed, so that our country can be better for everyone in it. So let let's talk about uh, the confluence of events um, that have led to um, what I have seen described as a political uprising, and I think that is very fair language to use in this circumstance. Um, I think you know we're obviously talking about um, centuries of uh, systemic racism. And, uh, we're talking about a situation now where the COVID-19 global pandemic has really, I-, I think like drawn the curtain back and has revealed the extent of how systemic racism is impacting people of color. And the, the, how COVID has so disproportionately affected those communities, how the economic depression that's been caused by COVID has disproportionately affected those communities has created this energy that then, you know, we had fairly in rapid succession. We had, uh, Amy Cooper, the woman in central park who called the police on Christian Cooper, who was there, uh, bird watching, um, and called her out for having her dog off leash when there's a leash law in effect. Uh, we had the, um, it local to me in Georgia, the, uh, murder of Ahmad Arbery, um, by an ex police officer, a retired police officer and his son, uh, planned and videoed by their friend in the car behind. Uh, we had, um, Brianna Taylor who was, um, killed by police in her home um, after a uh, no-knock warrant was issued. Um, and then finally, I think as, as everyone is probably aware, um, the uh, murder, uh, the homicide of, of George Floyd um, by police officers, by a police officer while well, three police officers watched. And I think, um, you know, this is not the first, you know, tragic um, example of police violence against a person of color, um, but it is uh, the spark on this that has lit this powder keg that is the uh, frustration of, um, of all of these events sort of coming together. And it, it is sort of this unique period of time where um, the... The depth of systemic racism is so visible in the covid nineteen data um and then really just ignited by um, these recent uh, examples of um, racism. And so um what we're gonna do is we're gonna get into the actual the actual science and the data um, behind those events that have have uh, led to the current events and um, this, moment in time where there's, you know, 140 different cities and towns, at least in the country, where there are um, protests supporting the Black Lives um, Matter movement, and um, and all of those of us who, who are um, in the periphery who also you know, need to be able to support this community.
0: I think one of the things that I just briefly want to point out before we jump into the science is that if you're not familiar with some of those names, or you haven't been following closely, or this is all kind of catching you off guard, because we all have lives, we all have challenges. It's not to say that, you know, the challenges of another don't mean that you don't. But what I do want to say after having gone through this process myself and kind of waking up to realizing that I, I wasn't paying attention enough. I wasn't doing enough. This is what I'm saying about myself. Um, how much more connected I feel to our country, to America, to the melting pot that makes us who we are. And I think Sarah, you talking about being an immigrant, like it, it made me, um, aware of how that difference is. And I want to point out as someone who has been here for generations, I mean, my grandparents both immigrated, um, actually my great grandparents both immigrated. Um, I'm, I'm about as American as it gets, right? (laughs) Like I'm, um, I traditionally fair skinned, like my husband is blonde. My kids are blonde hair, blue eyed. Like I, I, I want to say that like, I feel passionately, that immigrants and people of color um, make America what it is today. That my great-grandparents were not Americans. They were Hungarian or Italian or, um, you know, what, whatever it is. We, we all came to America at some point from somewhere in our not too distant past. And it is that difference that makes us special here. And I know not all listeners are American, but I hope that, um, I know that what you're seeing in the news is as difficult for you as it is for us here. Um, because there's, there's nothing good about what's happening with injustice and what's been happening for hundreds of years. And so I just, I want to say to you, Sarah, as an immigrant and to anyone that's listening that doesn't feel American or whatever the case may be, that there are, many of us who feel that is what america is that we we are what we are because of our differences and that's what makes us special that's what makes us unique and i hope that this information that we're going to share can help highlight how things are pulling us apart instead of bringing us together and if that's something that you weren't aware of um or maybe you were aware of it but it wasn't something you were focused on. Um, here's an opportunity to change. Like it's, this is not, you know, there's something you can do about the past. This is just an opportunity to take in the information and think to yourself, you know, what can I do now that I have this information? Now that I know better, how can I do better?
1: So let's start with talking about the racial disparities in uh, COVID-19 Cases and mortality, because I think that has been such a um, such a big piece of everything that's going on. So, um, what's really I think been problematic is that there isn't uh, really comprehensive data on race and ethnicity um, in the COVID nineteen data. So, what there is is. Um, you know, isolated places that are keeping data. And there are um, a variety of different organizations that are trying to collate that data and do analysis. Um, The CDC does have an entire page that is dedicated to the racial disparities in COVID-19. They're looking at data from only about 580 patients. There have been um, some other, like the APM Research Lab has done a, a, a bigger analysis um, and is basically showing that um, the uh, death rate, the mortality rate from COVID-19 is uh, per sort of like 100,000 Americans is approximately um, two times higher, uh, slightly, slightly over two times higher in African Americans compared to um white people um even compared to Asian Asians or um Latinx so um this is disproportionately affecting um African American black population and it's it's doing that for a variety of reasons so one of the things that's happening is there's actually more African Americans who are catching covid um per like as, a, as a, a proportion of the population, right? So um, there's actually far more COVID cases per population in African-Americans compared to uh, white Americans. And that is in large part because African-Americans are more likely, much more likely to work in the service industry, much more likely to not have paid sick leave. And then there is a higher mortality rate which has to do with um, pre-existing racial disparities in both chronic illness and access to healthcare. So what's happening right now is, if we're looking at the data, um, in, in um, the disparities are, are different in different regions. So on average, um, the disparity is that um, African-Americans are dying at about a little over, twice um, the rate as white Americans. Um, But there are places where, right, for example, in Louisiana, that disparity is about five times higher. Um, In Michigan, it's, um, it's about 10 times higher. So in different regions of the country where this data is actually being collected, we can see a greater disparity. And in some places like in North Carolina, the, the difference is only about 50%, um, which is still not okay. Um, so the, the, what this is showing us is this, um, collection of different factors that are contributing to this. So, um, for example, um, nearly a quarter of employed African-American workers work in the service industry compared to only 16% of non-Hispanic whites. Um, They're um, far more likely to be considered essential workers or workers in essential industries. Um, So, for example, even though Black and African-Americans only make up 12% of all employed workers, they make up um, 30% of licensed practical and licensed vocational nurses, which are a high exposure community um, because they're actually caring for people with COVID-19. And so um, the, the exposure is just much higher. But then we're compounding that on to a, like a pre-existing problem where there's huge racial disparities in chronic disease. And so there's a variety of reasons for this. Um, I've seen it referred to as being a complex disparity ecosystem, which basically means there's a lot of factors um, that are all contributors to this disparity. Um, it includes things like um, lower levels of economic resources, lower levels of access to health care, um, delays in treatment, lower health literacy rates, um, environmental factors, for example, um, Black Americans are more likely to have contaminated tap water or be exposed to environmental pollutants, um, less likely to have um, access to a grocery store that has, you know, fresh fruits and vegetables in it, right? So all of these are um, contributing to a much higher prevalence of all of the risk factors for a severe course of COVID-19, which we've talked about on the podcast before. So for example... Um, African-Americans have approximately a 70% higher rate of diabetes um, than white Americans. Um, uh, There's higher rates of cardiovascular disease, especially stroke, um, nearly double the rate of uh, hypertension, high blood pressure, which is one of the strongest risk factors for a severe course of COVID-19 is high blood pressure, um, higher rates of cancer. Um, So for example, the The cancer rate in uh, African Americans is about 35 percent higher um, than for for whites, and so it's this. Uh, this is one of the big uh, challenges for the black community. is It's not just the increased exposure to COVID. It's not just that they make up a larger proportion of the people who are getting it. It's that they're far more likely to have these pre-existing conditions that make them more susceptible to a severe course of of the disease and on top of all that compounded on top of all that um compared to uh white americans african americans are about twice as likely to be uninsured um and if you look at various like surveys um Black uh, Americans are much more likely to report not being able to see a doctor because of the cost. Um, they're far less likely to have employer based health insurance. And so there's not, there's like increased exposure because of the economics. Then there's um, more likely to have a pre existing condition that uh, increases likelihood of a severe course of disease because of um, these. Many, you know, this confluence of, um, of of factors and then less likely to be able to uh, see a doctor and get appropriate levels of health care. And all of that together has led to these disparities in how COVID-19 is impacting the Black community versus um, but really every other community. And then on top of all of that, right, so that's the health piece of it. The other thing that we've seen that I'm sure all of our listeners are acutely aware is uh, b- basically an uh, economic depression. Um, we haven't seen rates of unemployment like this ever, in, ever, um, right, certainly since the Great Depression. And uh, that has disproportionately also impacted people of color. Uh, so... There um, was a Pew Research Center um, survey that looked at um, Latinx and Black households compared to white households and looked at who was more likely to have a job loss due to COVID-19. They found 66% of Latinx households uh, were reporting at least one job loss due to COVID-19, 44% of Black households, and that's compared to only 38% of white households. But on top of that, there's a sort of a um, well-established racial wealth divide in America. So um, uh, families of color are much less likely to have savings to own a home, right? So they're much less likely to have uh, an economic safety net to be able to weather uh, being laid off or, or... um, having their job like just completely disappear because of the uh, economic sort of shutdown to handle the public health crisis that is COVID-19. Um, so all of those things have, I think, been, been uh, you know, again, it's sort of, um, it, was, it was throwing dry kindling uh, into a giant pile. Um, that was then able to maybe dry kindling and some I'm running away with this this is a very big runaway metaphor right now dry kindling and like lighter fluid and gasoline into a giant pile that was then able to be sparked with these um, this not just recent cases of police brutality but that were so blatant and um caught you know witnessed and and filmed
0: I think one of the things that, um, I've come around to understanding more and want to highlight from what you've said. So thank, thank you for putting all of that together. Um, I, in what I have been reading there, I think there's a lot of different ways to represent economic disparity. And when we say something like, you know, uh, a black family has less wealth than a white family, like let me give some tangible numbers in an article that I mm-hmm. read where I live. For example, the average median household income for a black family is 84,000. We live in one of the most expensive cost of living areas in the country. I've mentioned this previously. That's, you know, higher income than most areas of the country. But if you look at the white median income, it is like 118,000. So, it's not just the difference between, um, whether someone is college educated or not, this goes back so long into things that have built systemic racism into our country that is impossible to dig out of things that, um, oftentimes we don't even realize our culture is, is making racial assumptions for. And I think that goes into a lot of, um, Bias in the healthcare world as well. Like, because Mm -hmm. it is more likely that these conditions exist in Black Americans, it is also assumed or bias is given and lack of care. And we've talked about this as being something that um, we know exists in. Um, overweight patients as well, right? Like people don't get the quality of care because um, healthcare professionals are making assumptions. That's also happening in people of color. And so you're seeing not just an impact from the fact that they have an increased risk of health conditions, but then they're also not getting proper medical care because of bias and um, assumptions that are being made by healthcare professionals. And I think like that's kind of... I know that what we don't want to do is relate it back to ourselves because this is not about us, but I do think that it's important to understand and ground it for ourselves in a way that we can understand because we're not, we're never going to understand the black experience, but we can try to put ourselves in a situation where we can uh Know that things that are happening are not ok, and use our voice to speak on behalf of those that are being marginalized or being oppressed or being um, biased having against them. And I try to do that for all communities that affect health, and um realizing now that it is not something that I've been doing for the black community and Latinx and people of color who um, find themselves in these situations regularly. And I think, we as a country can do better. And there's so much that um, we need to learn to do that.
1: Um, One resource, this was a podcast episode that I listened to um, a few days ago, um, that I would just like to, to point our listeners to is, um, the podcast is called hidden brain. It's an NPR podcast. Um, and they had their episode from May 25th. That was called the people like us that actually sort of started with a a breakdown of, um, how COVID-19 is again, sort of disproportionately uh, affecting people of color. And then Talked. um, I think then it was like a a replay of an older podcast um, that I had had missed at some point um, that actually uh, evaluated, looked at some different studies looking at um, ways that healthcare could be improved to um, address these inequalities. And so that is definitely, um, I mean, I love the Hidden Brain podcast in general, but um, that particular episode, I think, is very relevant to this conversation. And so as we... Um, you know, one of the things that we want to do with this episode, um, beyond sort of bringing the data into this conversation is also help our listeners uh, with at least some some starting places of resources that uh, we both have found very helpful as we really are being very intentional in, um, And trying to reflect and learn uh, and educate ourselves in this time.
0: I do want to focus on that piece of of learning. I think none of us are going to just wake up in one moment and have all the information. But um, I do know that the more that we listen and the more that we learn, the more that we read, um, the more we support the communities that need us to understand and speak on behalf of. One of the things that I've been doing is um, intently having an activity to teach my children about racism, privilege, and how we as privileged white suburban family can use our voice on behalf of those um, who are not as fortunate. And um, that has been something as a parent that I've thought I was doing all along. Like, well, Mm -hmm. of course I'm not, you know, all, we love all people of all colors. Like we're, you know, we're Uh, that's my kids are woke. Yeah. Yeah. No, my kids were not. not. And, um, you know, I've been sharing in, um, social media, the different kinds of, um, videos that we've been, I've been showing them and then literally asking questions afterwards, like, what did you learn? How did that make you feel? Mm. Um, Different things like that. And then um, we've been watching a family movie night about black culture or um, racism or civil rights every single night as well. And um, I just put it out there like my kids aren't perfect. Last night, they rolled their eyes and they were like, again, we get it. And I was like, you know how frustrated you are about talking about racism right now? You know how over it you are? And they were like, yeah. I said, imagine dealing with racism like that every single day of your life because you were being impressed. And I just think it's important for me as a parent to impart this message on them right now. Like they They don't need to consume the negativity of the news. But they do yeah. need to be aware of what's happening in the world because our children will inherit this earth, right? Like they are who will be the next generation and who can continue to make change. And I want to make sure they understand, like, when they're old enough to vote, they need to not just vote in presidential elections, but they need to vote in local elections. And they need to do their research on what what is a sheriff's background, what are their beliefs, and what might they you know, build a depart- police department around, because that is something that I don't think a lot of Americans prioritize, local elections. I think, you know, we get people out for the big ones, um, but it's our local communities that really need um, our attention the most, I think. That's your your personal environment, right? So um, I make sure that they understand that that's their responsibility. Um, but like I said, I the more that I listen, and the more that I learn, the more that I read, the more empowered I feel to use the education that I find on my children, like with my children, so that um, they can hopefully go back to school more educated. I think one of the things that I realized this morning was actually how grateful I am of quarantine. I know a lot of children are out of school at this point, but mine are not yet. And to think that had they been in school during all of this, I couldn't really control the narrative. And we have an opportunity as parents right now to help control the narrative on what our children see and hear and reflect and learn from this process. And I think it's, if I need to tell my children that, I also need to do it for myself. You know, like I realized um, as I was talking to my children about being a voice and advocating for those who are um, being oppressed, I was literally the, the day before you and I talked about this podcast and I was like, well, I really need to do some self-reflection here because I, I, you know, we were talking about doing a different show and I was like, no, we need, we, we need to use our voices. We need to use our voices to stand up for those, um, who need us to do that. So, okay. Other things. (laughs) Other Things, what can we do? Sure. Okay. So let's, um, let's talk a little bit
1: about, uh, the statistics on police brutality, because that has uh, been the spark that lits the giant pile of kindling with the lighter fluid and the gasoline, because I'm going back to my runaway analogy. Um, So this is is one of the problems, is that there is no comprehensive federal database on um, uh, violent incidents with police. Um, And so... After Michael Brown's death in Ferguson, Missouri, in 2014, there were a variety of um, sort of independent third parties that took up the, the mantle of tracking this data. And so there are, there's a few. So there's one called Fatal Encounters, one called Mapping Police Violence, and then there's the Washington Post's Fatal Force Project. Um, they collect data in sort of different ways. They have slightly different things that they're tracking, different ways of counting, Um, but they have revealed um, some statistical trends over the last six years. Um, And we'll put a a couple of links to to articles that have um, sort of, that this data analyzed into the show notes. Um, But what they have revealed is that uh, on average, there's not, there hasn't been much change in six years um, in terms of uh, police violence, police, you know, um, lethal force being used. Um, there, if you get into the data, um, there's some shift where it's decreasing in some of the big cities that have had um, initiatives to, uh, you know, not use lethal force and and um, have really worked on. Um, really changing uh, the police culture. So in, in big cities, um, the rate of um, people being killed by police has gone down, but it's gone up in suburban and rural communities. Um, so on average, it's about the same. So for example, last year, there was about a thousand, a little over a thousand people who were killed by police. So that's according to Mapping Police Violence, um, which is one of those research groups. And um black people are about 2.5 times more likely to be killed. So they're disproportionately represented in that group. Um, so they're about 2.4 times more likely to be killed than, than a white person. Um, and they're more likely, uh, to be unarmed than a white person when they are killed. Um, and so, um, so there's, you know a variety of different people who are looking at this data and trying to to tease out some of um, not just like the various factors going going into again this racial disparity, but also trying to understand ways to address it. Um, some things have been shown to be completely ineffective. So, for example, uh, body cams have been shown to not impact um, the police brutality rates at all. Um, Actually, uh, bias training has been shown to, on the whole, be relatively ineffective, um, and that might be due to a large variety in how bias training is actually conducted. Um, But there was a a study just published um, last fall in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, which is a top-tier medical journal that... um, Estimated that a black man in America had approximately a one in one thousand chance of being killed by police during his lifetime. the The chance, of course, is much higher in that sort of twenty five to thirty five age range. Um, but that statistic is um, really eye opening. that That <laughs> that mortality rate is not that dissimilar to the mortality from COVID nineteen.
0: And I think, you know, one of the things that I want to point out is black people are not more likely to be killed because they're committing more crime. This is leveling the amount of crime. So whatever that, you know, that bias or assumption or, you know, anything that might come into play when you hear those numbers, like this is... That's already been corrected for in the statistics. Right. So I just wanted to... Make sure to put that out there because um, oftentimes we hear, well, that's because of this. No, those these numbers and statistics that we're giving you are um, already corrected for all of that and mm-hmm. are included in the show notes if you'd like to go and, and read more. We um, spent a lot of time, Sarah spent a lot of time pulling together notes and references and um, information that I think this is what we mean by... Learn. This is what we mean by you know seek out this information for yourself because um, knowledge is power, and the more knowledgeable we become on this, the more we can have those hard conversations with someone who might say something contrary to support of Black Lives Matter. If you have the education, if you have the statistics, if you have the information, you can help do the hard work on educating that person. And I know it's uncomfortable. It's gonna it's gonna be awkward. Um, but black lives matter and those conversations need to be had in order to help protect those lives that we've talked about. So um, we can stand up, we can get, uh, the phrase that I use is we can get comfortable being uncomfortable um, protecting and speaking on behalf of the marginalized group and people of color and um, black Americans specifically. Uh, other things other things we can do. I know we started this list and then we kind of like, um, wrapped back around and, um, we told you the show wasn't going to be perfect. So we're trying our best, but, um, Sarah, I know you've been doing a lot of, um, reading and Mm -hmm. and research yourself. Um, what are some of the other things that you have found you can do that, um, we want to share with our listeners?
1: What, one of the things that I have been um, learning about in particular is the language that is used to describe the Black Lives Matter protests right now um, and really examining my own uh, language because the the language that we default to is a really good indicator of unconscious bias. And so I'm really trying to be careful in, um, in the language that I'm choosing, right. And the vocabulary that I'm using. And, um, and one of the, uh, you know, I, I, um, uh, saw a really great analysis that was sort of looking at, um, you know, one of the things is, you know, a black lives matter protest compared to, um, a women's right protest or right. Like a, a, different type of, um, protest, uh, you know, um, LGBTQ community, right? Like, all these different um, uh, different sources of activism that a Black Lives Matter protest is far more likely to have the, wor- you know, words like violent used to describe it. Um, it's much more likely to be called something like a riot. Um, when, you know, yes, there, there has been violence, but that is the vast minority. I mean, almost... The majority of these protests have been peaceful protests, um, and they're sort of disproportionately being portrayed in the media as violent. You know, terms like riot are being used, and um, and so examining that language, um, you know, the the great analogy that I heard was the Boston Tea Party. Uh, would have been called a violent protest or a riot. And instead, we look at this as uh, such a, an essential part of our history where we were standing up to injustice. It was an uprising. Um, and thinking about the protests now in that same frame, because they it is, that's what it, it is standing up to an injustice. It is... Um, it is this, it is that important. It is, um, it is demanding change that should have already happened. And so looking at how, how I choose my words um, to really reflect what, what is happening, but also what needs to change and, and um, and using my vocabulary as part of how I am advocating for the Black Lives Matter community.
0: I love the example of the Boston Tea Party. Like, I think that is quintessential American that you probably <laughs> learned about in your... Um,
1: in my civics uh, yes, civics your, exam for your, my citizenship. Mm-hmm. Yes,
0: your citizenship exam. Um, so the other thing that I want to say, and I think... Your conversation also kind of reminded me of this, is that um, this is not to say that there are not numerous people across all walks of life, um, police officers, for example, who are not also wonderful allies. And I want to I wanna point yeah. out, uh, one of the things that we can do is, is be an ally in the future. And where there are statistics of police brutality, there's also amazing, incredible information, photos, articles, quotes, videos by police officers on the internet right now talking about how this is giving the force a bad name. It's not okay. And they are an ally for black Americans as well. And I think, you know, the more that we acknowledge and apologize for what is happening and openly come out and be an ally going forward, um, the more we lend to, um, that positive protest, right? Like that, that is our way of being able to, to support, um, change. So that is another thing that, um, I think is, is incredible and important. I think, um, another thing that I've been trying to do is share content from black voices to try to amplify them. People who are creating content, both from like something as simple as, um, uh, cookbooks and, and recipes. Like, for example, mm-hmm. Confessions of a Clean Foodie is like a um, Whole30-type recipe developer. Um, just adding people like that to your lexicon of network and community. If you um, don't have a lot of people of color in your community, um, seek them out and find them from other people who are sharing them. And that that's the thing, right, is when we only see our own type of people, whether it's, you know, gender, um, or age or color of skin. Like we, we all are better served when we, um, have diversity in our lives. We, we learn more yeah. and, um, being able to find black voices who are either talking about this in particular or going forward. If you just want to ensure that you're supporting, for example, you know, the work and shops of black business owners, like this, this makes a difference in their ability to get past those economic disparagements, right? Like they, when we support them, um, and this is not to say to not support other people, this is to say that, you know, we're we're presented with what's in front of us in our own network most often. Um, This is is easier for us to find. It's our community. Um, But there are a lot of people outside our communities who will bring joy and depth and knowledge and um, interest and comedy and all of these things to our lives. And Um, we're, we're all deserving of that voice and that platform and that microphone. And I know I'm better when I am bringing diversity into my life. Yeah.
1: Um, I read an article by Michael Crawford in the independent that, um, really spoke to me in terms of, um, uh, giving me, uh, action list, um, for ways that I can support the black community at this time. And I wanted to read one of the concluding paragraphs, um, because, uh, I just thought that it was a really fantastic collection of actions that we can take, um, so that we can be all of us using our voices again to, as we said at the top of the show, to, uh, go beyond from being not racist to being anti-racist um, And so this was this was what he wrote. He wrote make a commitment to fighting for racial equity and move to action by challenging racist words and actions from people you know. Donating money to civil rights organizations like Color of Change, Minnesota Freedom Fund Incorporated, and Fair Fight. Signing petitions by groups like Move On. Giving your children's books featuring diverse characters. Posting anti-racist articles on Facebook. Writing letters to the editor of your local newspaper urging justice. Calling your city council members and demanding better oversight of the police department. Calling the offices of progressive candidates to volunteer and making sure you're registered to vote.
0: That's a good summary, Michael Crawford. Um, Like I said, we're going to put a link to references and um, reading if you want to continue your learning, if you're feeling some kind of way right now, like me, if you realize through all of us that you want to do more and um, you're you're struggling with having had not done previously. Just remember, like we say on all of these shows, looking behind with shame and guilt doesn't help you move forward. Um, Mm -hmm. Being of service, uh, making a difference, focusing on what you can do going forward um, is going to help affect change for this community, but wallowing in guilt or shame or um, feeling confused and not doing anything, none of that helps affect change. So we are putting all of these references in the show notes for you, and we're hoping that it serves as an opportunity for you to continue the discussion. Um, I I will say, you know, I have heard and I have read from Black Voices over and over again regarding um, what is happening right now, that the, the best that we can do is apologize or what has happened in the past it is not okay we can acknowledge that we are an ally and that we want to help affect change going forward and then we can listen and learn to do that going forward and so those are kind of my leading principles is as I continue to try to you know parent and teach my children as I try to you know be a better ally and activist I, I know I've talked many times in the show before about my background in activism and um, advocacy and how important that is for me. This this has become something I've realized that um, it's something I need to do more of. And, And I could say that I should have done more of, but that doesn't serve me and it doesn't serve the Black community for me to focus on what I could have, should have, would have done. What I can say is what I will and what I am going to do going forward. So listeners, I hope that that's helpful for you to just take a deep breath and think, okay, what can I do? One step at a time. You know, no one's expecting you today to become a social justice warrior and to, you know, stop everything that you're doing. But there are little things that we can all do from the language that we speak to, you know, intentionally seeking out content and and those kinds of things that really do lead to big change.
1: So as we wrap up this episode, I sort of want to, again, acknowledge that um, Stacy and I are trying to use our platform, um, to both acknowledge where we know that we can do better, um, and that we're, we are, um, not just trying to express our solidarity with the black community in this moment, but also bring awareness to, um, the, you know, social injustices, the racial disparities that have built this moment, and encourage our listeners. Um, you know, again, as we say so often on the show, this isn't about being perfect. It's about taking those first steps down the road, and um, and really, what we're hoping to do is use our our platform to help build awareness so that we can encourage all of our listeners and the people in your lives, um, to, again, you know, it's about doing the best that we can in this moment, um, to, uh, to advocate for equality. And that is, that is what this is about.
0: Know better, do better. We can, we can apply that to every facet of our life. And I hope that this has helped you find a way to, incorporate that in yours. Thank you for your patience as we worked through this. As you can tell, Sarah and I um, were a little less fluid than we always are, but we have done our best and we hope that um, it inspires you to do the same. Thank you for listening and we will be back again next week. Thank you for being part of this awesome community. We know that we would be besties if only you could chime in.
1: Super besties. The best way to stay in touch with us is to engage on our social media, subscribe to our newsletters, and share this podcast with others.
0: Thank you for sharing. We love your reviews in iTunes, Stitcher, or however you listen.
1: Seeking the truth never gets old.